The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, uh, many of you have been living in the kingdom of God for many years, and you should really be the ones giving this talk, not me, because I'm new, or at least I have a new understanding about the kingdom of God that I'm working out at this particular moment. Citizenship in the kingdom of God, or at least my recent recognition of my own citizenship in it, is something pretty new to me. Um, But I'm so excited about it, so lit up by it, and so thrilled that I can't keep it in. And if I'm preaching to the choir, nothing could make me happier because it means that you're already seeing what I've just started to see, and that is our King Jesus' real-time, redemptive, regenerative work in those around us and in ourselves. Um, Now, just so you guys know, I don't have a degree in theology. Um, Everything I know about the Bible is... um, either things that, by the grace of God, I've been taught by other people or that I've discovered myself through reading, but I do have some personal experience that I'll share with you, and that'll be kind of the foundation for this talk today. And I need to back up a little bit and explain why a seemingly simple bit of perspective has ignited a revolution in my life. Um, I've been a Christian since I was a little kid, And as it is for many people, my faith has looked different in every single stage of life. Um, I often talk uh, with my friend Beth about how I didn't have an experience where I was uh, totally depraved and then had some sort of um, saving prayer and then my life was different and has looked the same ever since. It's really been a long journey and kind of all over the map. Um, And I want to talk about a particular phase of life I was living in, and that was in the year 2012, so about two years ago exactly um, from this June. In 2012, I was not living like a citizen in the kingdom of God. If I had citizenship there, I wouldn't have known it because I was living and acutely aware of my life as a citizen in a postmodern, educated, industrialized, capitalized, middle-class society. I was living in San Luis Obispo, working in Paso Robles in a corporate marketing job where I spent nine hours a day doing office work, commuting 40 minutes on either end. Um, Now, if you know me, um, you'd know that that type of work doesn't really connect to who I am as a person, which is very outgoing. I love to be around people, and I also went to school to study art, creative writing, and I was not doing this. Um, I had decided to get this degree during a particularly eager and idealistic stage of life, but at this time I had yet to finish a single draft of a novel I'd been slaving over for three years, and at some point I just stopped writing altogether. I still love to write, but I think looking back on it, I was at a point where I had lost touch with um, anything I had to say. Uh, It's important that I say there was nothing starkly terrible about my life. Like we all have to do at some time or another, I was going through the motions, paying bills, making myself dinner, cleaning, throwing myself at my work, drinking a lot of wine, and watching way too much reality TV. It's true, The Bachelor. Um, And my four-year relationship with my then-boyfriend, David, felt at times like it was going nowhere. 
and all the youthful excitement and passion and romance and hope and intellectual verb that had lit me up in my youth seemed completely gone. I'd embarked on adult life, and it was not what I was expecting. Everything about it felt bleak and boring and ultimately a little bit meaningless. I'd attempt to stay in touch with Jesus in little ways, praying a few times a week, visiting a new church every now and then. And I tried to comfort myself with thoughts about God's love, but it didn't seem to have much effect on me. The whole time, I felt really bad inside about my negative perspective on my circumstances. I felt guilty because I felt I was ungrateful, selfish, whiny. I felt the weight of guilt over not appreciating all that I had, which was a good job during a recession, a relationship with a very decent man, food to eat. I even lived in the happiest town in America. But I was completely unsatisfied and disappointed with how adult life had turned out. And at night, right before going to sleep, is when despair would just leap at me. This is still a struggle in life. Bedtime is always a time really fraught with worry. But during this particular period, I couldn't stop thinking about my own death. It was the thing that trumped all of these minor boring problems with one big looming bit of irrefutable knowledge. At the end of this boring adult life, I was going to die. We all were. So what was the point in any of it? What was the point in washing my dishes? What was the point in going to work? What was the point in getting money? What was the point of relationships? They were all doomed to end. Now, I had come to a crossroads that many, many of us will come to in life, those of us who are lucky. Some of us will come to this point several times over, and it's the moment in which we recognize our own impending death, and we must stop and ask what our life has meant. There is more than just one answer to this question. I want to talk about the problem of the fact that we all have to die. Next slide, please. Now, um, I have an 18-year-old brother with an Instagram account. I am also a high school teacher. Through these sources, among many others, I have come to learn about a concept taking the internet by storm. It's called YOLO. You only live once. People are posting it alongside po photos of them doing things that are either fun, over-the-top strange, or personally risky. In some sense, truer words have never been spoken, though some teenagers seem to misapply an idea that could ultimately be used as a catalyst to deepen their thinking about life. They've taken an important truth and turned it into a shallow platitude used to justify impulsivity. Um, you'll notice me and Beth in the corner there. I always think it's important when you're criticizing society to implicate yourself. Um, Beth and I, this picture is a picture of Beth and I when we rather impulsively decided to go out and purchase iPhones when we probably couldn't afford them. You'll see how excited we were about this. Um, YOLO. Okay, down here we have a, a young boy eating a burrito the size of a small human being <laughs> because he's been dared to do so. Skydiving up here, um, 
little college game, Edward 40 Hands, okay, um, where you have to drink two 40-ounce uh, bottles of beer, um, and it's a race, okay? Why? You only live once. Now, um, it's easy to poke fun at ourselves and at contemporary culture, but the truth is these people are recognizing the problem of death early on, and this is just their answer to that problem. You only live once, so live it up. Do whatever you want. This isn't the only answer, though. Philosophers, theologians, and everyday human beings have sought to answer the problem of having one life to live since the earliest days. I have a very quick philosophy lesson to sum up some of these answers, and I'd like to introduce you to a few of the answers people have given to the problem of death. Here's the first one. This is the hedonist, okay? This is a picture of, uh, excuse me, Caligula. Um, He was emperor uh, during the time of the apostles. He is known for being an intense pleasure seeker, um, so much so that people viewed him as insane. The motto of the hedonist is, you only live once, so do whatever feels good, right? I'm going to die, I'm going to have as much fun as I can and get as much as I can and enjoy pleasure as much as I can before I go. Okay. The next one I'd like to introduce you to is the nihilist. This is a picture of Friedrich Nietzsche, um, considered by many to be the father of nihilism. The motto of the nihilist is you only live once and that life is inherently meaningless as is all human existence, deal with it. Okay. Unfortunately, this kind of belief has become a prevailing viewpoint in our modern academic world. Oh. Next we have the existentialist, John Paul Sartre. I actually love existentialism. The view of the existentialist is you only live once, and life contains no external meaning, so you must make it meaningful. Because there's no external meaning, you have to find the thing that you are willing to live and die for. Next we have the Stoic. This is another uh, Roman emperor, the good emperor, Marcus Aurelius. The Stoic believes you only live once, but relax, it's okay. Your life can matter if you learn to be good and just while you were alive. The next three are very, very, very relevant to American society, okay? These do not come from ancient philosophies, although I'm sure that there are uh, examples of those in the ancient world. The perennial ignorer. You only live once? We die? Shh, let's not talk about it. There's other more pleasant things to worry about. Okay? These people are often taken by surprise in midlife or after. The next one we have, very, very important and also common in the United States, who I will call the unphilosophical legacy lever. You only live once, better leave a fortune or a building, or a large number of children, or a massive tombstone, or a presidential portrait, or a work of art, or a fan base, or something behind so people don't forget me. 
And then finally, we have, oh, that's me in high school, the standard American evangelical. The motto of the standard and modern evangelical in America has become, you only live once, not me. I'm going to heaven after I die, and that's better than this place anyway. And a really good evangelical will invite other people to go along, okay? Um, that last view is really, really important to me because that's how I viewed the cosmos for nearly my entire life. It caused me a lot of problems. I believe this, and of course there is some biblical truth there. However oversimplified it might be, eternal life is a reality. Jesus promises that throughout his lessons in the Gospels. But as much as I tried to derive meaning from this belief that I got to go to heaven, I struggled with it, and I found it didn't really help me very much to understand who God was or to understand how to live my own life. My dilemma was, if I didn't know how to live my one allotted life, how was I supposed to live an eternal one? The idea of eternal life preached by Christians around me did not cure my anxiety about death. In fact, it made it worse because life had begun to seem like this. Next slide. Famous Greek myth, Sisyphus, rolling the boulder up the hill for all eternity. And then how I felt down there. The idea of doing life forever even if it was in heaven, which all I knew about was that it was a far-off place that meant nothing to me except that it was uh, vague, disembodied, and um, ambiguously perfect, and Jesus lived there, but um, it confused me more than comforted me, and it certainly did not explain to me what to do now about my boring, seemingly meaningless, and very disappointing adult life. So we have another slide. Luckily, there is another choice. We don't have to fall into those patterns of thinking. Jesus has a different answer, and what he says is step into my kingdom right now. For I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And this amazing thing we have going on, me and you, we get to do this forever. This is the thought. I came to this weekend as I was praying, mulling this stuff over. The very notion of eternal life cannot be the exciting, thrilling, healing thing that it's meant to be if we don't value our lives now as Jesus does. In his interactions with the people he's met, he's shown himself to be immediately and passionately concerned with the reality of the present moment and the lives of those who have met him have been changed now, not only after death. And it strikes me that I will be far better equipped for eternity if I could start living the life I was destined to live in communion with him, starting now on earth. But what does this look like? Okay. It is clear through the teachings of Christ that the kingdom of God is not an earthly political reality though it does involve a sort of organized spiritual society with a ruler. 
And that ruler is a king, Jesus. And he's smart, he's wise, he's loving, he is kind, merciful, just, and powerful. In other words, the best king ever. And he wants to rule over our lives now and in the future because we are his people, we're his subjects, his citizens. It is not an earthly country exactly, but it does involve our earthly reality. It is not, in other words, a metaphor, as I once thought, but a living present truth that exists all around us. A lot of this talk was inspired by a book I recently read by the late theologian Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy, the book is called. And in The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard writes uh, that the kingdom of heaven, or uh, as he translates it, the kingdom of the heavens um, can also be translated as the kingdom of the atmosphere. It exists all around us. It's invisible to the naked eye, but it's present nonetheless. The kingdom of God, Jesus also tells us, is not meant to be a political revolution, but a spiritual revolution inside the soul of each Christian. When we understand that God wants to redeem us, not just from death, but from our own lives, and start to undergo that regeneration, we experience a spiritual coup d'etat. But how do we enter? Jesus has some instructions for us, fortunately. Here are some verses up here. He promises us that if we ask, if we seek the kingdom of God, if we ask to be a part of it, we can enter. And what does that look like once we're there? Jesus tells us to come to me. He says in John 5.37, come to me. In John 6, he tells us to feast on him. Kind of gruesome imagery there. He goes on and on. I'm the bread. Eat me, eat me. I'm the bread of life. Feed on me. Okay? This can be viewed as a metaphor. Um, Some view it as a literal uh, command with communion. That's fine, too. In either way, Jesus says being in the kingdom of God is to feed on him, to subsist on him. He says, believe in me, believe in my name. He tells us to listen to his voice. Okay, that's what we're asked to do here a lot at Coastlands. Listen to God. What is Jesus saying to you? And he says in John 7, drink of the spirit. If we do all of these things, which is living our life in worship to Christ, which is really all heaven is described as anyway, endless worship of Christ, we get to start to experience heaven now. I can't say uh, that the experience of stepping into our citizenship of the kingdom of heaven happens only, way for every, only one way for everybody. I can tell you um, how it happened for me. And kind of funny, but almost exactly one year, two years ago, uh, I wandered in here to this room, and I didn't know anybody. Um, except for Bree, and Mike Fry came up to me, and he had a word for me. And this was in the middle of my own personal crisis I was having. And he told me some things about my life. There's no way he could have known. And then he gave me a vision for my future. 
a vision that was scarily, shockingly relevant to my dilemma at that particular moment. And it was receiving this word from the Holy Spirit um, that I realized that I might be a little bit wrong in my thinking about God. It was an experience I had never had before, and it was one that left me wheeling from the knowledge that for whatever reason, Jesus cares about my scared, little, insignificant, meaningless life. And he wanted to change it. Not just my attitude. He wanted to change my life. And he had a plan for what it would look like, and he was excited about it. What started as an internal transformation of a belief has poured out in ways that have transformed my life during the last two years. Even the practical ordering of things. My job, my relationships, my creative destiny. This has all changed because I have learned finally that these things actually matter not just to me but to God. And these bleak little corners of our humanity matter to Jesus He wants to redeem them. He's waiting, and he wants to transform them and become king over them. It seems as though when we look at the person and teachings of Jesus Christ, we see a king who values each real minute of our waking lives, not just our life after death. And through him, we begin to see the meaning, the weight, the opportunity, the potential for eternal glory in every moment that we live right now on earth. Not just future life in perfect heaven, but here on our sad, beautiful, broken, wonderful planet. Now, I want to bring up a little diagram that kind of oriented my thinking when I was young. This was given to me in youth group. I think that this diagram ruined my life, okay? I don't get too black and white about things, but do not show this diagram to children. Okay, Brie, this is on you. No, okay? Has anyone seen this diagram before? Okay, yeah, some of you have seen it. Here's the diagram, okay? This is what I was shown in youth group. Over here is earth. Over there is heaven, okay? Now, before Jesus came, everyone was destined to fall into that pit but because of the cross, we get to go to heaven, okay? Sure, true. This is not the whole story. Please know, okay? There is a different diagram I recently learned about from my dear friend, Eric Garner, who's about to get ordained as a Presbyterian minister next week. He showed me a new diagram, and I was like, oh my gosh, I get it, okay? Here's a diagram that maybe is a little bit helpful, At least it has been to me, okay? There's earth over here, creation, sin, death, matter, the material world, life, people. And over here in heaven, we have glory, healing, spirit, worship, regeneration. And the kingdom of God is this beautiful fusion of these two things. And we're the church right in the middle. We get to experience both at the same time. And this is what the vineyard talks about when they talk about the now and the not yet. One day heaven and earth will be made one whole together, completely redeemed. And in the meanwhile, 
we get to see little pieces of that redemption all around us and in our own lives. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's redemptive vision for the world. Now, as citizens uh, in the kingdom of God, uh, we have to admit that nature yet has not been completely redeemed. There's still pain. There is still sin. There is still suffering. We're still going to have crappy days. We're still going to get bored. We're still going to be dissatisfied sometimes. But if we keep our perspective here, we're able to recognize Christ's breaking through of his kingship on earth. And through these moments, we experience healing. We might experience signs and wonders. And we might experience a fulfilling direct interaction with Jesus through the Holy Spirit and through our love for one another and the world. As citizens in the kingdom, as God's own church, we get to exist here in this mystical meeting of heaven and earth. And though bound by our reality and physical circumstances, we get to experience the kingdom of Jesus. And this gets to go on forever. I want to pull back up that last verse again. Last slide. The kingdom of heaven, (coughs) excuse me, kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in the field, (coughs) which a man has found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. When I was young, I interpreted this verse to mean, oh, when you go to heaven, this is what it feels like. Sell everything you have so you can go to heaven. Ooh, okay, I don't think that's it. I'm not saying I know for sure. I'm not a theologian, but I don't think that's it. Because I read this verse with new eyes now. Because when I found the kingdom of God, I was filled with so much joy and excitement like I am today that I would do anything to get to be a part of it. Anything. This is what I want for us at Coastlands. It's what I'm experiencing. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. This is an amazing place because the Spirit of God is working here. He's changing people. And I just want us to give glory to God for that. Thank you.